And as you take your seats, will you bow in prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are gathered in your name. We raise our hearts and our voices, our hands to you. To your glory, to your greatness, to the reality, to all of the realities from which we just sang. Death has no sting. That we have an opportunity to to live changed. That something happened 2,000 years ago that ripple across history. We're gathered today to proclaim that we believe. We stake our hearts. We stake our hope. We stake our very lives in the truth that the Son of God came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died our death. He went into a tomb for three days, and for many, it seemed like all was lost. But that wasn't the rest of the story. Because he rose, and sin and death are defeated. And Lord, as we're gathered in your name this morning, may we never forget that. And may we be a church that when we sing it, we are alive with joy because of it as if it was the first time we heard it. We love you, Lord. Your presence is here among us. We ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to what you want to say this morning. And that the work of your spirit would continue to change our hearts and our lives. So that our gathering here today wouldn't just be a a moment in our week, but it would be a time where we encountered the risen Christ. And it once again changed us. So when we leave this place, when we go into the world, we go back to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to to the restaurants, to the gas stations, to the grocery stores, wherever we go this week, that the change that that you've done in us would be evident to the world around us. And we'd have an opportunity to share. We'd have an opportunity to need six vases full of red flowers. Because we're so ready to tell people about this good news which you've given us, Lord. That's why we're here. So speak now. Speak through me, Lord. Help me. I can't do this on my own. This is your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if... um, this is your first time here. Welcome. My name is Dan, and I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Palmyra Grace. I don't know if you're a guest out there. If you're not a guest and you haven't met me yet because I'm new, I'd love to meet you. I'm trying to make my way around and say hello to everybody each and every week. I'm just so glad to be here, and I'm glad you are here this morning. If this is your first time here, we are actually in a summer series called The Unexplainables. The unexplainables. And what we're trying to do is capitalize on the fact that, you know, it's summer. It's summer blockbuster time. And there's always superhero movies coming out this time. And one of the biggest superheroes coming out this season is is The uh, Incredibles 2. This this superhero story about this family, this normal family that actually has superpowers. And if you're not a superhero fan, that's okay. I mean, I'll pray for you. But... um, (laughs) 
But if you're not, that's okay. I, for one, loved, and I have since I was little, I, I've just loved the idea of like these, these hidden people that have these, these superpowers and they, they go out and they, they really impact the world for good and, and stop crime and, and take care of evil. And, you know, um, I know I could never, I could never be a superhero. Maybe you could never be a superhero, but we are ordinary people, and God has called us to do something besides have superpowers. He's called us to live lives that are supernatural. That if you say, yes, I believe in Jesus, I, he is the Lord of my life, that his spirit comes and lives in you, and his power is at work in you, and if you engage that work of Christ in your heart and life, that you will become something different. You will change. You will live differently. You will love differently. You will encounter the world differently. And for those who do not know who Jesus is, who have never encountered Jesus, your life will truly become unexplainable. So we're asking the question throughout this summer, what does it mean to be one of the unexplainables? We've said that this supernatural power of God is truly unexplainable, but it is livable. It is livable. It's something that we are called to live. It's something that God wants us to live out He wants our beliefs to be put into our shoes so that we literally live this out. It's just not a held doctrine or a a, a statement of faith. No, it is something that truly comes out in everything that we are and everything that we do and every encounter that we have. And we're having the, the Apostle John help us through this. So we're walking through the letter of 1 John, a letter from the Apostle John to, the ch- to a church, a group of churches. And if you have your scripture with you this morning, I invite you just to turn there with me to 1 John, starting at verse 8. 1 John uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 8. I'm just going to read this aloud. Um, if you don't have your scripture open, you can open up your ears and uh, hear what the Lord has for us this morning. John writes this, If we ha- say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. As we've been walking through this series... We've been looking at clips from the Incredibles 1 movie, and this week's like no other. I invite you, before we uh, dive into what John's trying to teach us this morning, just to take a look at this clip from Incredibles 1. In a stunning turn of events, a superhero is being sued for saving someone who apparently didn't want to be saved. The plaintiff, Oliver Sansweet, who was foiled in his attempted suicide by Mr. Incredible, has filed suit against the famed superhero in Superior Court. Mr. Sansweet didn't ask to be saved. Mr. Sansweet didn't want to be saved. And the injury received from Mr. Incredible's actions, so-called, causes him daily pain. Hey, I saved your life! You didn't save my life, you ruined my death! That's what the... Listen, my client has no further comment at this time. Five days later, another suit was filed by the victims of the L-Train accident. Incredibles court losses cost the government millions. 
and open the floodgates for dozens of superhero lawsuits the world over. It is time for their secret identity to become their only identity. Time for them to join us or go away. Under tremendous public pressure and the crushing financial burden of an ever-mounting series of lawsuits, the government quietly initiated the Superhero Relocation Program. The Supers would be granted amnesty from responsibility for past actions in exchange for the promise to never again resume hero work. Where are they now? They are living among us. Average citizens, average heroes, quietly and anonymously continuing to make the world a better place. So I don't know if you caught that. It's actually kind of absurd. This is a part of the plot of Incredibles 1. The superheroes go into hiding because they're being sued for saving people. I don't know if you heard the guy who was going to commit suicide and he said, you didn't save my life, you ruined my death. And he sued him because Mr. Incredible saved him. Is that not absurd? I mean, the first time I saw that, I, I laughed at it, but then I thought, wow, that's just, that is unbelievably absurd. I mean, who doesn't want to be saved? Who would, who would rather be, be facing death and, and moving closer to death to the point where your, your life is so overwhelmed by whatever it was to where you wanted to kill yourself, you wanted to actually live into dying on your own, in your own hands and that you would actually sue and blame somebody for stepping in to save you. I mean, what kind of person wouldn't want to be saved? What kind of person would rather walk or jump towards death than actually be saved and live into life? It's, a, it's, a, it's absurd. The whole premise for the movie is absurd, right? But here's the thing. If I'm honest with you, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we often do the same thing. We often live into, maybe walk through behaviors, maybe repeated behaviors, we often say things, do things, think things that really, if we take scripture seriously, are bringing our own death. And we ignore that which truly saves us. And one of the things that we have to struggle with is what that means. If you haven't caught on yet, I promised last week we'd be talking about it this week. We're talking about sin. We're talking about our lives and how we engage and how we overcome and how we, we deal with this problem of sin. Before I get there, actually, you know, sin is this word that really we don't like to say it, do we? I mean, in culture today, we don't like to say the word sin. We don't like to call somebody a sinner. No, it's kind of hard. I mean, if we say it's a sin, then it kind of makes us feel like we're judgmental. I mean, if you call somebody a sinner, you're judgmental, Right? Don't judge me. Did you ever hear anybody say that? Don't judge the way that I am. If we, if we say the word sin, if we recognize that sin's a real thing, then it means that there's moral absolutes. It means that there's actually something that's right and something that's wrong. There's actually something that's black and white. If we say that there is something as sin and if we are sinners, then we're actually accountable for it. We have to ask forgiveness from it. If we say we have sin in our lives, as John says, if we have, say we have sin, then we have to come face to face with the reality that there is such a thing and that we are called to live to a standard that's defined by something outside of ourselves, our own whims, 
I mean, the definition of sin is this. It's a transgression of divine divine law. I'll get that out of there. Transgression of divine law. That means if you acknowledge that there's sin, that also means that you acknowledge that there is divinity, that there is God, and that God has a law, and that if you violate his law, then you have sinned. There's sins of omission. You know, I, 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 I knew I should do, do something, but I didn't do it. You know, the Greek word actually, the Greek word for sin that's in our New Testament, it's translated as sin, can actually be translated as miss the mark. You know, it's, you're, you're just off. It's, it's that sin of omission. There's, there's sins that we're, where we know we shouldn't do something and we do it. I mean, this is how I define sin. When I was a youth pastor, I defined sin this way. I knew it was wrong. It felt good. But now it doesn't. I once heard a pastor say, if it doesn't feel good when you do the sin, you aren't doing it right. <laughs> but, uh, but, now, but now, after it's over, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. In fact, I feel terrible. I feel, I feel guilty. It's, it's something that's, that's hurt my heart. It's, I, I know that I've done wrong, and we don't like that feeling. So rather than say that we've sinned, rather than call our behavior sin, rather than say we are sinners, we say a different word. We say the word mistake. I made a mistake. A mistake's an error in action. It's a miscalculation. It's an opinion or a judgment caused by poor reading. Hey, I, I, I'm, I just made a mistake. I didn't, I didn't sin. I, I wasn't thinking straight. Listen, I know you think that I wronged you, but nobody's perfect. I mean, come on. What do you expect? I didn't know better. My bad. My bad. Anybody ever heard that? Oh, my bad. <laughs> you can't be too mad at me. If, you're, if it's a mistake, you can't be too mad at me. I mean, I said I'm sorry. Let's just move on. After all, I'm only human. I, we all make mistakes. But here's the thing. If we're grappling with what does it mean to live an unexplainable life, if we want to grab a hold of actually what we spent the morning singing, the power and the praise that comes through what Jesus did and accomplished when he was here, that we have to come face to face with this word sin. There is a huge difference, church, between being a sinner and a mistaker. There's a huge difference. You know, if you're a mistaker, all you have to do is try harder. All you have to do is be better. Or maybe you just have to get over this habit and, and, and promise not to do it next time. If, if you're a mistaker, there's really, like I said, no need for true forgiveness. You just kind of say, I'm sorry, and let's move on. But if you're a sinner, if you're a sinner, then there's something more than just the action. If you're a sinner, it's fundamental to who you are. If you're a sinner, then at your very core of your nature, there is something wrong with you. There is something broken inside of you. If you're a sinner, you're not able to fix it yourself. You're not able to change it yourself. If you're a sinner, self-help is not going to help you. If you're a sinner, you need a Savior. So how do we deal with this idea of sin? This is where 1 John, John the Apostle, Grandpa John, as I've been calling him, meets us this morning. John's writing to a church, a group of churches, and he wrote the letter of 1 John. It was actually just a letter that he wrote to a group of churches for a different purpose than he wrote his gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John's the fourth gospel, and he wrote that to tell the story of Jesus, to prove that Jesus, through his miracles, through his life, through his teachings, he truly was the Son of God, and and he wanted people to come to faith in Jesus. But he wrote 1 John to people who were believers, 
to exhort them and to correct issues that were going on in their churches, to correct teachings that false teachers were teaching them, because he wanted to write this letter so that people would follow this letter's teachings and actually begin to live their lives out for Jesus. And he writes very clearly in the beginning of our passage this morning that if we say we have no sin, if we say we're just a mistaker, we deceive ourselves. We just lie to ourselves. If we say we have it, assume we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. One of the problems that many scholars believe that first, the reason for John writing this is, like I said, the false teachers, these, these false teachers that were coming into the churches were telling Christians that now, you're a, now that you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about sin anymore. And, 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 if in, and some of them believe that they were saying that now that, you're, now that you're a Christian, you don't have to have any personal responsibility for your sin. Everything's off the table. And John says, no, 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 no. Being a sinner, even after salvation, after regeneration, is, is still something that we need to deal with. It's still something that we need to come to grips with. It's still part of what it means to follow Jesus. If you say you have no sin, you're lying to yourself and the truth is not in you. A truth is a principle of life that is just, it, 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 it has to be there for life to exist. And if we don't believe that we are a sinner, then that truth, that God is something different, that God has a law that's something different from our own nature, that our will is bent against God, is, is defeated. If, if, if the truth is not in us, then what his word says, what, what he actually says to us is not true. If we say that the truth is not in us, then we, God has no ability to change our hearts and lives. You're lying to yourself if you say you're not a sinner. And it's easy to say that, isn't it? I mean, we could say, I'm a sinner, but do we truly, church, I understand, I'm speaking to a lot of people who've been in the faith a long time, but do we truly take that seriously? Do we truly come face to face with our sin? As I preached last week, each of these messages building on each other, do we truly encounter God's light, allow his light to shine in our dark places and come face to face with those places inside of us that are still bent away from God's will and say, we gotta deal with that. God, I need you to cleanse that place. I need you to encounter me there because this is what John says we have to do. Look what he says as we go on. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess actually just means to agree, to get in line with. So what, what John's saying is that if we say that we are a sinner, if we agree with God that our actions are sinful, that there is something in our very nature that's bent against God, if we get to that place, then God is faithful and just. He's true to himself. And he will forgive us. But the prerequisite for grabbing a hold of God's forgiveness, the prerequisite for being able to live the new life in Christ is actually to say... I'm a sinner. You have to say you're a sinner to receive forgiveness. Confession, getting in line with the truth of what your nature is, the nature of humanity since the fall, since Adam and Eve, the scripture tells us very clearly that we all have a nature that is naturally bent against God. I've shared it before. All of us left to our own devices without the grace of God moving in our hearts of lives would truly be runaway trains with one place to go, and that's a giant crash at the end. 
And yet there's many times in small ways, not in big ways, we jump off that building and we hope that God never convicts us to encounter the fact that we need a Savior. We do it all the time. The Christian life, folks, is a continuous confession of our sins. It's not just the first time. It's not just that moment that you realize you're a sinner and you need a Savior. It's not that time that you come to an altar or have that time where you surrender your life to Jesus Christ when you become a Christian. That's true. That's necessary. That is part of it. But it's, it's actually a daily pursuit, a daily m- moment in time where you get in front of God. That's why I say each and every day it is so important that we get into this Word and that as you get into the Word, that the Word gets into you. And as you read the words, as I go in my devotional time and as I read through, something happens if I open my heart and I open my life to it. If I truly enter that time, just not as a practice, but as an opportunity for God's light, his truth to get in me so that he shines through the deepest parts of me. And as I'm reading along, something happens. It's like, hey, Dan. Actually, more of the time it's like this. Hey, (laughs) Dan. Yeah, you know that? You know that behavior? You know that thought? You know that action? You know that word that you said? You know that, that, that thought that you had about that person? That's not of me. And as his truth gets in me, it's his kindness that leads us towards repentance. It's his love for us that says, I don't want you to live in death. I want you to repent. I want you to change your heart. I want to change your life. And I want you to turn toward me and begin to believe that what I want to do with you is better than the life that you would live by yourself. Every single day, it takes it. The Christian life says that. And John goes on, just in case you didn't believe him, John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, a liar. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. C.H. Spurgeon, who's called the prince of pastors or prince of preachers, says it this way, and I loved it enough I wanted to put it up this morning. He says it this way, the idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you, and you have not seen the things in true light. Yeah, that light that we talked about last week. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. You must have forgotten to search your thoughts and weigh your motives, or you would have detected the presence of sin. He goes on, he says, He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. Don't you love that? Yeah, the person that can't even find water in the sea is more foolish, is less foolish than the person that says, I'm not a sinner. Yeah. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. That's good. I think it's good anyway. But maybe you're here this morning, you say, okay, Dan, some of you, some of you, you're, you're, on, you're on point with me. Yeah, I, I, okay, I get it. I've heard this before. I know what sin is. And, and, and what I need us to know, though, why this is so important, not only in our own life, because of those small things we have a tendency to overlook, but also in our culture today is that we live in a culture where everything is relative. In a culture where if we truly believe in the people that, as I'm preaching, that I'm praying that we are going out and interacting with, 
That these, that these people, those that don't know Jesus, people that would see us as unexplainable, it is unexplainable to them to believe that there is something that defines right and wrong, a standard in which we are called to live by, and that they themselves are sinners. This is the culture we embrace, embrace this morning. So if you, if you hear my message and you hear this message this morning and you're like, yes, this is all review, great. Take it and apply this to how you could possibly work in the hearts and lives of those people who we want to reach for Jesus Christ. But maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're here and you, you've come and you're still on the fence and that's great. I am glad you're here. And as a side note, church, I want you to invite those people here. I want all of you to invite these people here because I am going to talk to them every single week. And if you're here this morning, I am so glad you're here because I want to speak to you and I want to say, listen, I understand culture says, hey, I'm a good person. He's a good person. I've done enough funerals as a pastor already to know at our funeral, everybody's a good person. Yeah, we can lie like nobody's business at each other's funerals. But if the standard is just being a good person, then the question that follows is how good is good enough? Where is the line drawn? How good do you have to be for Christ, for for God to say, yeah, you're good enough. You can have eternity with me. The problem is good enough doesn't work. The problem is that when Jesus was on the scene, Jesus showed us just how good enough was never going to work. Jesus didn't even deal with the Ten Commandments. There were some people during his day that said, if you keep the Ten Commandments, if you keep the commandments, you're good to go. And Jesus did something insane. Jesus upped the bar beyond even the Ten Commandments. And I want to show you that real quick this morning. So flip over to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, if, uh, if you're don't have scripture, I'm going to have this up on the screen, but flip, flip over to Matthew 5, because I want to show you this morning how Jesus said that good isn't good enough. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said this, I'm sorry, Ma- Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not to, uh, come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, there were some people during Jesus' days that thought when the Messiah came that he would get rid of all the laws, that he would say, that he would dumb them down, that he would lower the standard. And there's some churches, there's some preachers, there's some places today where that's that's what is said, that that Jesus kind of lowered the bar and and that, you know, living a, a holy life isn't really what you need to do as a follower of Jesus. This is what the people were saying actually during John's day, why he wrote this letter. And Jesus said, no, I've come to fulfill them. In fact, if you look at verse 19, he said, I've come to up the ante. He said, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these of the least commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? If someone relaxes any of my laws, any of my commandments, you'll be called the least. He goes on, he says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus says about being good. He t- this is what Jesus says about the standard that we're lived by. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that. Think about like the, the greatest Christian that you know. You know what I mean? Maybe it's Billy Graham. Maybe it's your grandma. 
Maybe just that person in your life that you could think of that you're like, wow, I hope someday that I can love and serve the Lord like them. Think about that person. Jesus says, unless the righteousness exceeds in this day, the Pharisees who were the keeper of everything, who were the creme of the creme of keeping the law, unless it exceeds that, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. To which every person in the audience when Jesus was teaching that would have went, and every one of them would have went, there's no way. There's no way I could do it. But that's not all, Jesus said. I think he would probably say, but let's get even worse. He says this. He says, you know those Ten Commandments, that standard that you live by? You've heard it said uh, to to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Yeah, Jesus says, it's not just about not killing somebody. If you even are angry with your brother, you've killed them in your heart. And a few chapters later, or verses later, he says this, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To which every man in this room should be saying, oh my goodness, can you imagine? That's where Jesus raised the bar. And, and ladies, I'm not letting you off the hook. Anyone who's ever looked at a man with lust in her heart has already committed adultery. That's what Jesus said. He said, you want, you want this easy thing? No, no, no. Everyone, if, if we're honest, every single man that's ever lived would have committed adultery in his heart. This is where Jesus is pointing people. But he wasn't finished. He says this, you heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To where you want to say, Jesus, what? I don't even pray for my neighbors. I don't even pray for my kids sometimes. Sometimes I forget to pray for my wife. If I'm honest, sometimes during the week, I don't even pray for lunch. And you want me to pray for my enemies? You want me to pray for that guy across the street whose political views are so wacky compared to mine? You want me to pray for for that guy or, or that girl and what she, you don't know, Lord, what she did to me. You don't know what she said to me. You, I don't even pray for the people I like. You want me to pray for the people that persecute me? Are you crazy? And to take it further, Jesus, you're telling me that this is the standard to get into heaven? Jesus, you're telling me to be right with God, that I have to deal with my anger in such a way that I can't even be angry with somebody or I've murdered them in my heart? Jesus, you're telling me that my thought life has to be so pure that I can't even look at a woman and have a thought or I'm going to be sinning against my wife and committing adultery? Jesus, you're telling me that I have to love my neighbor to that standard? Jesus, that's the standard? That's what it means to be good enough. That's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means to be pure. That's impossible, God. Nobody could possibly ever do that. No one possibly would be that good. No one possibly would be that righteous. Every single person on earth will have sinned so many times every single day to the point where Jesus would say, yes, that's the point. That's the whole point. That's the reason you need a savior. The purpose of my sermon on the mount, the purpose of sin and the 
And, and the purpose of my light shining onto the dark places of your life is not for you to feel guilty, not for you to stay there, not for you to continue to live in your death. No, the purpose is to drive you to me. Flip back to 1 John. Because this is 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Because this is where John is going. He says, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. John says that if anyone does admit that they're a sinner, if anyone says, yes, I admit I am a sinner, that we have an advocate, Jesus the righteous. That word advocate is, is the Greek word paraclete. Paraclete, not a pair of cleats, which is what I thought it was for such a long time. No, a paraclete. And it's five times in the New Testament, this word, and every single time except once, it refers to the Holy Spirit. But in this time, John has actually used the word paraclete, helper, someone that will come alongside us, an advocate who stands before the court and testifies on our behalf, someone who's going to walk with us and carry us through the day and day and now. John uses that word to refer to Jesus. So this word could possibly mean both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That an advocate means somebody that will help us when we sin. He is the cleanser of our sin. He is the forgiver of our sin. The, go the gospel, the the good news is so amazing. What John is saying that if we would just get to the place where we would realize our sin, that we have a, a Savior who died on the cross to save us from sin, and we have God the Holy Spirit who lives in our heart that actually will help us live a life where we do not sin. Think about that. Is that not amazing? That is what it means to have a, an advocate, Jesus, the righteous one. And here is why Jesus has the ability to do this. This is the reason why Jesus can be our advocate in our time. John tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins. If you can't say that word, the best thing to do is just say it fast and proud, and everybody will think you know what you're saying. But it's the propitiation of our sins. It, it, means, it means sometimes you hear it as the atoning sacrifice. It means that Jesus appeased and satisfied God's divine righteousness by his death and the demands of God's holiness by what he did. It also could mean he is the one, because of what he did, he, he cleansed us of our sins. And so Jesus, because of what he did, because of what we sing every single morning, what we sang all morning, I love this set because we were just telling the story of what Jesus did on that cross, but not only for our sins, but for the whole world. And it's important, I just point out to you this morning, this whole world doesn't mean universalism. It means that, that what Jesus did on the cross, as he was the atoning sacrifice, has the ability to cleanse the whole world of all of its sin. But only those who repent and believe in him as Savior and Lord will be saved. So here's the unexplainable truth I want us to walk away with today. If, as we focus on what does it mean to be a sinner and, and how does God want us to live lives that are unexplainable. It's that freedom is found in admitting you're fallen. 
Freedom is found in admitting your fallen. You see, this isn't a message where I'm beating on the pulpit calling you a sinner. What I'm trying to call you to is the realization that it is at the point in your heart and your life every single day where you approach God as a sinner that his grace comes into your life, that you're enabled to, to uh, tackle your sin. And this is countercultural, is it not? This is why we need to preach this message. This is why I need to preach this message because every single day, my children, myself, all of you are counteracting this wave of thought that comes at us from many, many different directions that no one's fallen, that everybody's okay. Hey, I was just designed this way. I was born this way. You can't judge me. This is, this is just how I feel. And, and, and if, you're, if, if God is gonna say that the way that I feel is wrong, then I don't, I don't accept God. That's where we're at. But what God's truth, what God's love says, is that I love you so much, I'm going to meet you where you are, but I love you so much, I'm not going to leave you there. Because whether you recognize it or not, the feelings and the nature that you have inside of you is actually moving you closer to your own death. Freedom is found when you admit you're fallen. And this is tough. Let's get to the nuts and bolts of this as Christians. We always, as Christians, we try to determine what's sin and what's not. I've led more small groups in Bible studies where we try to talk for 45 minutes about whether this is a sinner or not. When I was a youth pastor, one of the favorite favorite questions I had as a youth pastor was, okay, Pastor Dan, when I'm with a girl, how far can I go before it's a sin? What's the line? Just tell me the line so I can keep it. You know what I mean? That's, the boys are all looking the other way at me right now. But, <laughs> but, but that's, 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 that's where we try to go, right? We, rather than facing we're a sinner and, and to encounter God and encounter his grace in our lives so that he will change us, so that our nature would become more like him, we want to find out where the line is so that we can control our own behavior so that we could have the gospel of sin management, not the gospel of sinners saved by grace by faith, through faith, right? That's how we want it. And this, this is what John, what John is saying to us this morning. What I'm trying to say to you is that the standard is so high. What God has set for us is so high that each and every time we come face to face with our fallen nature, it is to drive us towards him so that he can do the work of changing us from the inside out. The gospel is so upside down. The story of Jesus is so upside down. To be an unexplainable person, to live an unexplainable life is so upside down because what Jesus asks you to do is constantly, day in and day out, transfer your confidence in yourself to your confidence in him. Every single day, he's asking you to embrace your sinner so that you're enabled by grace. Every day in a world that we're taught to excuse sin, that God is saying to us that we need to admit that we're a sinner so we can receive salvation. He says that the moment we recognize that we're bent toward death, we actually receive life. Do you see how backwards this is? The gospel says that the moment we realize we're not mistakers and admit we're sinners, we find freedom in his love and in his grace. Freedom is found in admitting you're fallen. And folks, to many people, this is unexplainable. And this is what's hard. And so we could walk out of here, and you could walk out of here this morning, and you could say, great, Pastor, I learned what sin is. And I'm a sinner. 
And you could take it that way. And if this is the first time you've heard this, and maybe that's, that, that's great, because the idea of revealing to your heart and your life that you're a sinner, the purpose of that is for you also to realize you need a Savior and to walk in his grace and his truth and his love. But for the rest of you, for the rest of you, freedom is found in admitting you're fallen may mean that God's asking you this morning to start taking your faith and your sin more seriously. Because what would happen, let's be real, what would, what would happen if we all would take our sin more seriously? It's not a popular message. I didn't expect to get accolades and you know flowers thrown up on the stage after I was done with this this morning. But what would happen? Guys, what would happen in your marriage if you take your sin more seriously? If you'd say to God each and every day, show me the places, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Know my thoughts. Is there anything in me that's not of you? I see it, now I give it to you, change me. Ladies, what about the way that you see other people or the ways that you see another woman and you're like, ah, uh, you know, she thinks she's all that. She thinks, you know, those, those types of, I know those things happen. Guys do it too. So I'm not picking on the ladies. But what would happen if you were to take, as the word says, every thought captive, took your sins seriously? How would God change your heart? How would you, as we talked about the first week, really capture that which is joy. Young men, old men, what would happen if you really took your thought life seriously? What would happen if you really took the media that you put into your brains and in your heart seriously? What if we actually thought about when we get on the internet how that's changing us, for good or for bad? If we took that seriously, if we took that and rather than feeling guilty, rather than running to darkness, we would ex- let it be exposed by his marvelous light so that it could be, we could be set free from it. How would that change? How would that change you? How would that change the way you feel about yourself? How would that change in your relationships with others? What if each and every day we actually sat down with the Lord and said, God, I'm going to open up your word. I want it to get into me. And we would allow that time to be an intentional time, not to check the box, but for God's word to expose those places where he wants us to be, act, and look more like Jesus. What would happen to this church? I I know what would happen. It wouldn't be what the world teaches us, which is what we would become navel gazers who would be so down on ourselves that we would never be able to look up and to love the world. No, we would be set free so much by the things that are really bringing death to us that we would walk in new life and light, that we would truly be able to say that I am in Christ and I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We truly be able to say each and every day as we look to each each other. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live in my body, I live by faith in him. And it is marvelous and it is wonderful. 
I'm able to say, Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set me free. I'm no longer burdened by the sin that bears down on me day in, day out. No, I walk in the newness of love and life, and my life looks like Jesus. And everywhere I go, I don't have to worry if somebody knows something about me. I don't have to worry if someone's going to dig up something about me. I don't have to worry if I have a thought or I have an action that's going to come and bite me later. No, I just walk in the Spirit with Jesus, and everywhere I go, the only thing I'm thinking about because he set me free from all that other garbage in my life is loving people the way he's called me to. And if our church would just be a place where we would take our sins so seriously that we would be set free from it, then his spirit would so fill this place. Our worship would be so full of people that are joyous and grat- in gratitude for what he said that this would be a place that's so unexplainable that people would come in here and they would say, I don't know what's up with that place. I can't explain it, but I've never felt or seen anything like it ever. That's what God wants. That's what he wants to do in this place. That's what he wants to do in your life. Folks, yeah, we all make mistakes, but at the core, we're sinners. But it's not to drive us from him. It's to drive us at our knees to the, on our face in front of him. And say, Lord, save me, change me, make me new. Make me more like you. Make me free from it. I don't want to live like that anymore. Lord, I want to be unexplainable pray with me. Father, you are good. You're so good. Even when you make us come face to face with the reality that at the core of who we are, we're not. It's because your goodness is trying to draw us to yourself. You're trying to say that which is in you that brings sin. I want to bring the light of life. So Lord, help us. This isn't a fun message to hear. Heck, it's not a fun message to preach, Lord, but help us take our sins seriously. Lord, if I could pray one thing for our church, if for each person gathered here, we just, I just ask that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. And that we would realize that good's never going to be good enough, but you are good. And as we see our sin, as you convict us of our sin, it is a confirmation of your love that you don't want to leave us living in death. No, you want to draw us closer to you so that we may have life. Lord, help us as a community of faith to take it seriously so that our lives would be changed and so that when people would become, when people would see us and they would feel that being a sinner is judgmental, they would see that, no, the freedom that we walk in is great. And that it's not the judgment that we're afraid of, it's, it's the freedom that we have through the shed blood of our Savior. Change us, Lord, and use this message for your will and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So I pray that God will use this if anyone needs to talk or prayer, I'm going to be up here. I'd love to do that with you. We don't have a song today. I can sing for you, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Come back next week as we dive into the fourth week of the unexplainables. May you be unexplainable to someone this week. God bless you. See you then.